1: Welcome back. We are talking about the new paid sick leave program. We are talking to Rocco Rossi and I'd like to bring in Dr. Nahid Dosani, who is a palliative care physician and a health justice activist. Hi, Dr. Dosani.
2: Hey, how are you?
1: Fine. Uh, What don't you like about this program?
2: I think one of the first things we have to recognize is that um paid sick days uh have evidence to work and um, we have evidence from the states that in influenza uh cases uh, cases went down by 40% during COVID-19 we've seen cases go down by 50% but what we've also seen is that this plan uh, was not the best uh, paid sick days plan in North America not even close it offered 3 days um in in a pandemic where people need a minimum of 10 to isolate. It's like giving three days of antibiotics when a prescription really calls for 10 days.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Isn't it uh, better than what we had before? You know, it's better,
2: you know, three days is better than nothing. But why should we be settling for better than nothing? Our patients need at least 10 days and another 14 during public health emergencies. We've been calling essential workers, quote-unquote, heroes, and it's very clear that this government values the labor of essential workers, but not their lives. The argument for paid sick days that are legislated and employer-paid is not exotic. Sixteen states in the United States have permanent, legislated, employer-paid sick days, not to mention that the fact that this announcement um, announced a plan that wasn't seamless in addition to not being adequate.
1: Well, uh, I guess what they're saying is that after the three days, the federal program, which they want to top up, would kick in.
2: And like many things, the devil is in the details. The reality is you can say that, and it sounds nice, but it's not actually that seamless for the person or the worker. This really creates a Band-Aid on a Band-Aid problem. And um, and the truth is that once workers are up with their three days, they have to apply to CRSP, and that's not as seamless as it sounds. It has the same problems as before. Workers are already dealing with a broken vaccine system. You've heard about the Hunger Games of vaccines. But now, not only are workers left struggling to book back vaccines, but now need to go through the same mess to access paid sick days. It's just not fair.
1: Uh, Rocco, is, is your take on the federal program uh, the same?
3: Look, at, uh, we know uh, you don't have to uh, have a subjective opinion about it. The, the federal government notionally set aside $5 billion for sick benefit because it knew, as anyone could tell them, that this was going to be a big issue. Um, there has been now the newest um, estimate is that less than three quarters of a billion will be taken up for two reasons one that the doctor has said it um, it requires an application process which is after the fact so it leaves a gap for people and if you're an employee that has to make the choice between doing the right thing by public health and putting food on the table having that gap is not uh, is not helpful. Number two, it was limited to $500 a week, which is essentially a little bit above minimum wage. And so, to be fair to the provincial government, the offer to top up to several weeks, double to $1,000, all programs need two things. One, they need money, and two, they need a mechanism to deliver that money. And I totally agree with the doctor, that the mechanism that's being suggested is not as efficient, not as useful as it could be. It's going to be better than where we were yesterday, so let's not let perfection get in the way of better than where we were. But we need to keep pushing, as we have, on lots of programs throughout the crisis. When wage subsidy started, it was 10%. It didn't move the dial, people weren't picking it up, It had to be adjusted to 75%. The rent subsidy program, initially, the offload of the management to it to landlords, not appropriate, very low pickup. Uh, It now, after months of fighting, got changed to uh, tenant-initiated, far better, far better pickup. We don't have months. I share the doctor's sense of urgency, so we need... We need all levels of government at the table. The money has now been set there. It's a matter of having the willingness to have the appropriate mechanism. And as I suggested, there are tools available. Because of employer, employee remittances, you could simply subtract uh, from that and deal with the paperwork at the back end. The employee wouldn't, uh, wouldn't need to see that at all, wouldn't be affected by that at all, and businesses would have the certainty that the money is there and not have to wait for months on end to be reimbursed. We all agree with the initial statement by the, by the doctor that this is a key tool in helping us to manage the outbreak, particularly that we've seen of this third wave with more virulent uh, variants that are affecting younger people. And those who are most at risk are those who have to be at work in person every day in crowded settings. And so we need this. We need more in the way of targeted uh, vaccines. We need rapid testing. There's a whole suite of things. And together we can push for it. What what will kill it is to try to inject a permanent solution in the middle of a crisis that that we don't share uh, in common. Let's deal with the crisis. Let's deal with it now as efficiently, effectively as possible because it's a real problem um, that has to be addressed.
1: Uh, let us take a call from Dennis in oh, Brampton. Please. Hi, Dennis.
3: Hi, Libby. Thank you for taking my call. The um, question is this. I'm I'm having some difficulty understanding why uh, the government is expected to pick up the entire tab. Does this mean that large employers, and I understand smaller business would have difficulty paying pits, paid sick days, but are we going to be, in effect, subsidizing large employees? And I'll throw in Amazon, Walmart, and Loblaws as examples, and I'm sure there are many others, who are already making... On the pandemic, so they're
1: making profits. You're cutting out. Yeah, that's that's a good yeah. question. My my understanding is that Amazon has covered some of this. I don't know. No, about... I'll,
2: I'll jump in on this okay. one. I really do agree with this, Collin. Thank you so much for bringing up this point by reimbursing employers uh, for this expense workers uh, through their tax dollars, we, the taxpayers, are ending up subsidizing profitable corporations who can totally afford to pay for paid sick days. Jeff Bezos has gotten $91 billion richer, the founder of Amazon, during this pandemic. And uh, so Amazon can certainly afford to pay for its own paid sick days. And that's why we have been asking for employer-paid, legislated paid sick days. Time and time and time again, again, we have seen that government support. Sure. Okay, large one at one, one
1: at a, t- and one at a time, and
2: big box stores and big box stores who are interested in profit. This is once again seeing that happen, and and, and you know, quite frankly, as a health worker, I'm sick and tired of seeing my parents, my, my patients get sick and die as a result of these policies.
1: Okay, Rocco, uh, can you jump in? Because my understanding is that some of those places are paying for sick days.
3: They are, and the. The program explicitly do, will not compensate those who already have pre-existing sick days, either through a collective agreement or because the margins of their business have allowed that uh, to be negotiated before this time. But the second point, and this is really the crucial one, because because people uh, you know want to pick uh, an individual uh, company to demonize. I have sixty thousand members in Ontario, 59,999 of them are not Amazon. Uh, tens of thousands of businesses have gone bankrupt during this crisis. Tens of thousands more are hanging on by their fingernails. These are businesses that that people need to uh, survive in order to have jobs going forward. And the last thing they need in the middle of this is is to be legislated an additional cost, to, and this is not an ideological issue. The premier of British Columbia, Premier Horgan, who heads a majority NDP government, understands the math and has not legislated uh, paid uh, employer-paid sick days either before or during this crisis. So let's be let's be clear here: those who make additional profit are going to be taxed. That is the mechanism that we have in our society. We didn't set a means test for serve up front for individuals. We just said, look, those who, those who are, are getting it who didn't really need it are going to be taxed at the back end. What we should be looking for is the quickest, most efficient system to move forward in the middle of a crisis, and then we'll come back to what. Permanent things are required in a non-crisis circumstance, but let's not confuse the two and let's not affect the vast majority of businesses and employers by trying to categorize them in the same breath as very large, very profitable businesses, because the vast majority of businesses, the vast majority of the employees are working for businesses who are not in that position.
1: We are uh, almost out of time, so I'm going to give the last word to Dr. Dosani. About 30 seconds, please.
2: Yeah, sure. You know, I think um, we did get three days unpaid sick days. It's better than nothing, but we shouldn't have to settle for, you know, um, the the three days that we got. This is like giving people three days of antibiotics when the prescription calls for 10. It's literally minimum 10 days of isolation. The CRSP federal program is not seamless. We need a program that's seamless, fully employer paid, universal, adequate and permanent. Uh, essential workers are our heroes. Their paid sick leave should not have an expiry date on September 25th. We need permanent paid sick days in this province.
1: Okay. Uh, well, uh, thank you both for your views and uh, for clarifying the situation. It, it's, uh, I guess, it's a start, the three paid sick days. Thanks so much, Rocco Rossi and Dr. Nahid Dosani.
2: Pleasure. Thanks very much.
1: Okay. Um, I'm told I say, okay, too much. I have to watch that. Uh, uh, so Free For All Friday is coming up tomorrow. I've had a lot of tweets from people who say, oh, you wouldn't have taken my call. I absolutely would have. So please call in with your thoughts. Tomorrow's the day we deal with whatever you want to talk about, not just the topics that we here pick. Uh, looking forward to it. And that is all the time we have for today.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. After months of pressure, yesterday the Ford government announced a paid sick leave program. It offers workers three days where their pay will continue as usual, up to 200 bucks a day and employers will be reimbursed. After that, they'd have to apply for the much-criticized federal program. Queen's Park is working with Ottawa to top up those benefits, so they would double from $500 to $1,000 a week for up to four weeks. That deal is not yet done. Mayor Patrick Brown of Brampton has been pushing for paid sick days. He joins me now. Hi, Mayor Brown. How are you?
4: Afternoon. Always a pleasure to be on your show.
1: Well, thank you so much. Always good to talk to you. So what's your reaction to what the government is offering?
4: Well, I want to start off by saying it's a progress. This is something we've been pushing for for a long time. Uh, 25% of COVID-19 cases in Peel, through our contact tracing, are linked back to individuals going into work sick. And so this was a tool that our medical officer health thought was critical so I'm encouraged that they've made this announcement. Listen, I I, I know no announcement is going to be uh, perfect. There are always going to be critics, but they put a lot on the table here. And it's a $2 billion um, uh, provincial uh, commitment. Uh, the three days are going to help. Um, the enhancement of the federal benefit is going to help. So I would say I'm uh, I'm encouraged. I know some people will say, you know, why isn't it four day, 14 days? Um, you know, it, it, it's it's still... a uh, uh, an important tool that we didn't have before. So I believe uh, this, this will help.
1: Uh, you're right, and we we will be talking to uh, at least one of the critics, so a lot of critics saying it's not good enough, but there's also a criticism that uh, maybe it's kind of too late. I mean, this thing is not passed yet. Uh, the the federal-provincial piece of it, uh, I mean, that's not even agreed to. Uh, so what about the timing? Is it is it sort of too little too late? Well, so I, I wish that we had it. Six
4: months ago, I think it would have helped uh, curb the escalation of cases. Clearly, if 25% of our cases have been traced back to people going into work sick, um, I don't think there was initially an appreciation for how vulnerable some essential workers are in terms of living paycheck to paycheck and not being able to to miss a paycheck because if they did, they wouldn't be able to put food on the table or pay their rent. But you know, I have to acknowledge um, it's still going to help. You know, we're not out of this yet uh we're going to have a tough uh, next uh, month at least totally likely tough few months and that this will be a tool that will help um so i'm i'm grateful uh y- you know it doesn't help anyone to look backwards and 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 criticize I, as a mayor i just try to look forward and and get whatever tool i can to help our residents and this is a tool that's going to help
1: i remember talking to you a few weeks ago and asking you what what the reason was that they were so resistant to this and and uh, I basically you said they didn't want to spend the money. What do you think finally changed their minds? You know, I I think
4: there was a chorus of um, input from the medical officers of uh, of health, from leading physicians, and I think it started to have uh, traction. You know, I can tell you I had a number of conversations with the premier, um, with the finance minister. Finance Minister Peter Bethlenfalvy, and I know I was explaining to them how the federal benefit wasn't working. I I think at the beginning, they really believed the federal benefit um, was a good uh, stopgap, but it was an effective measure. I explained that it was below minimum wage. It would take sometimes three months to get back. What I like about the benefit they've introduced right now is that the employer will be paid back, but but the employer will provide those paid sick days, and so it means there's going to be a continuous paycheck. The programs you have to apply for and wait months, they don't work for people living paycheck to paycheck. And so I like the element that they've removed that uncertainty and that paperwork in the process.
1: Now, what they have been saying lately is that the federal program has been fixed or expedited and that most of those checks now arrive three to five days. Do you have any sense of whether that is true?
4: Yeah, so I haven't heard that. One of the number one complaints that I heard in Brampton was how long it would take to get those checks back. I'm told they're trying to improve it. I certainly haven't heard any cases of coming in three to five days. Um, It's about that ability to have the continuous uh, paycheck. And the reason people were apprehensive about um, trusting some program in Ottawa is they didn't want the rent to balance. They didn't want to not have money in their their bank account to, to, to pay for groceries. And so... Um, it's. I think over the last few months, there's been a greater recognition that there are many essential workers in incredibly vulnerable positions. I think that realization um, has helped the government uh, adopt a, a course that they probably weren't going to adopt otherwise.
1: What about... The criticism that the application process itself is a barrier, especially if people are sick, because, you know, you have the three days, but if you need more time, you have to get busy and apply for this federal program. Yeah, and so one of my
4: misgivings with the federal program is that it's paperwork. There's a lot of red tape in in doing so, and there's a lot of people um, who simply can't navigate um, that, that federal bureaucracy. Uh, and where, and where to apply and how to do it. And, um, it's why I think the three days is, is significant because it's easy. The, the employer, um, ensures the paycheck continues. They're the ones that have to, um, uh, do the, do the paperwork. I would love it if the federal system was, was the same way. Um, so listen, it's, it's not perfect, but we have progress. And I'm always someone that acknowledges progress. And I think the government has made progress on this file that is going to be helpful.
1: What about uh, the vaccine rollout and uh, the new pharmacies going in? uh, Do you feel that things have improved and that Brampton is getting more of a fair shake?
4: So at the beginning of the pandemic, we were around 6% of the provincial vaccine allocation and we had 10.5% of the, of the population. It moved to 9% then to 10%. They're telling us that our May allocation is going to be 13%. So we're heading in the right direction Um, the, the science table has said that we should allocate 50% to hotspots. If there was a 50% hotspots allocation of hotspots, we'd probably be at 20%. Um, and that would make an immeasurable difference. You know, we still have a lot of essential workers that can't get vaccinated. The average age of an essential worker is 36. The age threshold that the mass vaccination centers is 45. So, you know, we still have some distance to go, uh, before we can get to our most vulnerable, um, workers and i get emails and calls every day from uh, loved ones of essential workers pleading saying when are we going to you know i'm worried about my son or daughter or my husband or wife going into work each day when are they going to be eligible and so for me that's still hard to to hear because i want them vaccinated yesterday um but i do acknowledge um the trajectory is encouraging we like, going from six percent to 13 percent we're starting to see more of a focus on hot spots which is helpful. Um, but but we could go further.
1: You know, there, there's one thing that is extremely encouraging, because going into this, uh, there was so much concern and still about vaccine hesitancy and the theory that it would be prevalent or more prevalent in ethnic communities like you have in Brampton. And as far as I can see, people are clamoring for those shots. They are not hesitant.
4: Yeah, they are clamoring for those shots. You know, we have significant interest. What will be um, interesting is as we get through more of the population. So right now we've got about 30% of the population vaccinated. and We need to get to 70% to have herd immunity. And so once we get through all the age thresholds, um, that's when we'll find out whether there is any vaccine hesitancy. And we're already working on a a public relations campaign targeted to um, the various cultural communities that is the mosaic of of Canada and our community, so we're going to have an effective effort to make sure we push back against vaccine hesitancy.
1: Okay. Anything you want to leave us with?
4: No, just uh, stay safe and uh, all the best. Uh, uh, things continue to be crazy in my household. Two under two. <laughs> yeah. So uh, my wife gave me permission to sneak away and do this interview because you can't say no to you. Okay. That,
1: <laughs> That's <laughs> good. For me on. Okay. Thank you so much. My pleasure. All right. Uh, first, before we get to the next, I'm going to take a call from Clay, who has been waiting very patiently. Hi, Clay. Hi, how are you, Libby? Fine. How are you? Not bad.
5: I tell people, take a marking pen and uh, take uh, accountability out of the dictionary and take compliance out. You know, they're calling for Mary Fullerton's uh, resignation. They should be calling for the resignation. of the 75 inspectors. I mean, the ones at the end were doing their inspections over the phone, which is garbage as well as you, you know as well as I am. That, that's crazy. Uh, I, I, I'm a survivor of Johns Manville, and I think I've mentioned before, Libby, the Ministry of Labour had phoned on Monday, saying we're coming out of Thursday for an inspection, so obviously everything that was of concern was shut down. Uh, I feel sorry for Doug Ford, because he's getting the brunt of it. He's made a lot of bad decisions. He's trying to please too many people. But the, you know what? Kathleen Wynne, uh, if you remember, we they had the big fire at Lake Magantic, Quebec, and uh, all the nursing homes, they need sprinkler systems. And she gave the, the, the long-term care homes 15 years. Why didn't she give them uh, interest-free loans to do it now instead of waiting for, for 15 years? Like, I mean, there's so many fingers to be pointed at so many people. I Like, it, it's terrible. I feel sorry for these people in long-term yeah, term, care Yeah, uh, certainly
1: there is plenty of blame to go around. Clay, thanks very much for your call. Bye. Bye. Okay. There is a lot of criticism of the plan for paid sick days, especially from doctors who end up treating infected essential workers and their families? And what about the businesses that will have to cover those three days and put in whatever paperwork is needed to get the money back? Let's go to Rocco Rossi, President and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Hey, Rocco.
3: Hey, Libby. Thanks for shining a light on this.
1: Okay, so uh, what's your reaction well, I, I do think there
3: are some positive elements to it. I like the fact that uh, the government's acknowledged that at a time when so many businesses are hanging on by their fingernails, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be business pay to be paid out of um, out of uh, general government revenues. The the point that you raise is an important one. We want to make sure that the mechanism of the of the reimbursement is fast and. WSIB may not turn out to be the, the best way to uh, to do that, um, but it's still very positive. We've been calling for some time at the OCC of the importance of, of paid sick days as a key measure, a key tool uh, to help us manage this crisis uh, until we have that herd immunity that Mayor Brown talked about earlier. Um, so it is crucial. We've seen in this third wave that... Um, that, uh, there, there are these hotspots. There are, um, th- there are disproportionately, uh, essential frontline workers are being, are being affected. And so paid sick leave so that people do not have to make the choice between doing the right thing by public health for all of us. Uh, and versus putting food on the table. Uh, the big piece that needs to still be sorted out and I think would, would truly make it, uh, a fabulous program is, is really the top up that the province has promised on the federal program because then that gets you into several weeks, not just three days of coverage. And that's the piece that's got to be made seamless because that, um, will, will, will respond in the best possible way. Um, but to those who say, well, you know, not enough, what I would say is it's it's better than where we were yesterday. What we need to do is get it to a point where it does the job that it's intended to do, which is really take that horrible choice off the table for employees.
1: Okay. Well, um, we're going to have to take a break in a minute. Just, uh, you know, uh one point, first of all, I don't see how that's going to become seamless. And you mentioned off the top that maybe the Workplace Safety and Insurance Board is not the mechanism for a quick refund. I mean, aren't they notorious for bureaucracy?
3: Well, there is there is new leadership. We'll we'll see. Look, I, I, I believe, as with all things that have been happening um, during the pandemic, the, the proof will be in the pudding. So they have to show it to us. A faster way of making it seamless. One suggestion that that we've made is, you know, employers have to pay employee remittances back to both levels of government on taxes and uh, other things. And if you simply said, "Look, you could subtract from the remittances what you're paying in um, in the sick benefits," and then and then we'll we'll sort the paperwork out at the end. That would get the money immediately. That would not create this lag, and it would help to make seamless between the three days into um, into the federal program, so that there's real coverage for employees
1: facing this crisis. Well, that sounds like a good idea. Maybe it makes too much sense. Uh, we have to take a break. Rocco, please hang on. On the other side of the break we'll have more with Rocco Rossi and also a physician critic of the plan Dr. Nahid Dosani and I will take some of your calls. I promise on the other side of the break.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zuma Radio heard weekdays from noon to one now fight back with libby's nimer on zoomer radio good afternoon
1: and welcome Yesterday, the Auditor General released a scathing report on the state of long-term care and the sector's inability to protect residents when the pandemic struck. It was the latest in a very long line of reports, which have largely been ignored by successive governments over a period of decades. The report, though, did find that lax inspections and the Ford government's slow response worsened the situation, but here's how Long-Term Care Minister Merrily Fullerton sees her role.
6: It's kind of like running into a building, a burning building. You know, you're trying to save it and you're doing your very best. Um, but the, you know, the fire had started well beyond the pandemic. And so I think it's our government that is a government that is committed to this.
1: Well, you know, it's really interesting how people see themselves and what they're doing. If anything, I'd say it's more like closing the barn door after the horses have escaped. Now, the Auditor General herself issued this report with a caveat that none of it should come as a surprise. So what does Bonnie Lissick hope will come of her work and the recommendations attached to it? She joins me now. Hello, and thank you so much for being with us. Hi, hi, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, so first of all, the Minister clearly thinks that none of this is her or her government's fault. What do you make of that?
7: you know i think I think you have to look at the particular issues in, in terms of of um, respond uh, responding to that. I mean i think I think it's fair to say that a lot of the recommendations from the past with respect to infection prevention and control, that came out at the SARS commission, the expert commission there, the changes that were needed so that when a pandemic hit um, the province, um, that the impact of it was managed and that uh, that there were systems in place that could deal with it effectively. So with respect to that, we know that infection prevention control in the long-term care homes was not where it needed to be when the pandemic hit. and And that being the case, that you know the cases spread quite quite quickly. The compounding of that was the systemic issues in terms of, you know, having more than two people in a room, having three or four. We know that a lot of the homes that were impacted during COVID had three or four per, four residents in the room, and as such, when when um, people were moved into the long term care homes and the capacity was already high, that caused um, that gave the homes the inability to isolate people within the home. So the systemic issue did contribute to that. Um, you know, there, there were uh, things that happened during COVID that, um, caught, maybe contributed a little bit more to the confusion and to the outcomes. And that would have been, um, at the time when the system is broken, um, more direct guidance is needed. The homes needed to have very, very clear guidance as to how to deal with the, uh, pandemic, um, you know, from public health and from the hospitals and from the, the chief medical officer of health. So uh, uh, it's a combined. I would say there's there's a combined issues that uh, that led to what we saw.
1: Well, I can see that you don't want to point the finger at them, but it, it's this government that got rid of a lot of inspections. And during the pandemic, uh, such as they were, they were conducted mm-hmm. on the phone. Now, I think on the inspection
7: side, it's fair to say that um, what happened there is at the end of 2019-2018, uh, a decision was made to stop uh, comprehensive inspections uh, by the ministry to go ahead and deal with the backlog of complaints and incidences. So the focus was on that, such that the comprehensive inspections, you're right, were stopped and those inspections were the only ones that were identifying that there were infection prevention control weaknesses in the in the homes. And so um, now a lot of these homes had those issues raised for many years, and um, the follow-up process on making sure that they fixed those issues wasn't in place. So we do have recommendations in the report around strengthening the inspection process getting the uh, public health unit involved in the inspection of IPAC and strengthening the ministry inspection process. But you're correct to say that the full inspections did stop and a focus, uh, there was a refocus of attention on the inspections. And that did happen at the tail end of 2018, beginning of 2019.
1: And the, the infection control, as you pointed out, uh, that was talked about after SARS, which was the Liberal government, but uh, the Ford government did nothing to enforce that either. Yeah, and and I think you know under the legislation, the Long Term Care Act, the the
7: main responsibility for having plans in place around infection prevention, control, and teaching staff how to deal with it, is with the operators of those long term care homes. Now, when you when when there is a, a system as big as the one in Ontario. There needs to be an acknowledgement by the ministry and by the public health system that they would require education and they would require more health uh, help in making sure that they have access to the correct information to implement good IPAC um, 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 uh, directives in their own homes. So in in that sense, um, there still needs to be more work in working with the long-term care homes to make sure that this doesn't happen in the future, even after covid um, because we see in the third wave vaccinations have worked, our hope in putting out this report is that the eyes are not taken off the long term care sector just because COVID passes and they're not getting as infected. It's there's other issues uh, that that need to be
8: addressed. Uh,
1: did you deal at all with the second wave? So, for instance, we knew about these infection control problems. Mm-hmm. In the first Mm -hmm. wave, there was this lovely respite that we had to prepare for the second wave, which everyone knew was coming. In places like Quebec, they made sure that there was an infection control person, officer, uh, whatever, somebody in charge of it in each home. This province did not do that, and the result was that the death toll in the second wave was even more devastating.
7: Yeah, I think uh, we saw the first wave, it was sort of a wave up and down. It happened very quickly, and and you'd expect at the front end that there'd be more surprises. But by the time we hit the second wave, the second wave was longer and flatter. And uh, what we saw when we looked at the data is that um, there were different homes uh, impacted, and there still was not um, enough relationships in place to help those homes between the hospitals and the public health. And there still was... um, uh, you know, the issue of PSWs uh, and, uh, was still an issue, you know, the turnover and people not showing up, as well as not letting people go in to help their loved ones. The intent was there so that, you know, the COVID spread would, would not happen from visitors. But I think that there needed to be the acknowledgement that sometimes those family members are also the people that feed people, that dress them. And that having not having that there put an additional strain on those long term care homes. So there is that aspect that we recommend needs to be reviewed as well as the ability to move people out of the long term care homes to areas that they can quarantine people in and having that facility set up. So even though one would say it's the long term care homes responsibilities to deal with something like this and have a pandemic plan two things were working against them. They didn't know where to look to, you know, get quarantining done. And they didn't have um, a requirement under the regulation in Ontario to have such a plan in place. And so both of those things needed to happen before the second wave as well, like a quick, a quick, um, you know, set up in terms of relationships.
1: So and that, accommodation. Uh, again, this is a failing on the part of the government.
7: I would say that um, there needed to be, um things put in place that could deal with what we saw happening in the first phase in the second phase um perhaps quicker um, that we're basically commenting on our report to that effect what we're basically saying as well is that no matter you know what we've seen in the first wave second wave they'll keep the eyes on the long-term care sector um you know we're obviously not positioned to have a fourth wave in the homes but the plan should be put in place to avoid any type of situation like this happening in the future. And so there's lessons to be learned for everyone. And, and yeah, quick decision making. I think one of the things that um, came out of SARS was the principle of um, precautionary principle. And what does that mean? It just means making decisions, and it's not always dependent on the science
1: giving you 100% the answer, right? Uh, a couple of notes on on your comments about essential caregivers. I remember while we were in the thick of it, there were... Uh, umpteen experts saying the same thing that you're punishing people we we had examples of people deteriorating terribly which you put Mm -hmm. in your report uh but no one listened no one listened and uh, until uh you know it was all almost over so that that's one thing and and um What about an enforcement piece? I mean, this is something that goes back a very long time. So even when we know that there are deficiencies in the home, nothing happens. And the argument seems to be, well, if we shut them down or whatever, then where will those people go?
7: No, I I think you've hit the issue on the head. I think there's been a lot of tolerance and a lot of patience and a lot of, you know, um, sort of paper you know, processes to say, you know, you're not doing this, clean it up, instead of a more stronger enforcement. And so we have as an office been recommending that that be looked at uh, because even in when we did the original audit and long-term care inspection process in 2015, we recognized that, the, you know, there wasn't enough being done to make sure that the homes came through and fixed what was being identified as weaknesses. There are, you know, um, in our report, we talked to uh, a number of homes that have had repeat um, orders that they needed to fix their infection prevention control processes. The biggest one is plans of care. The biggest one that we see is that the plans of care for people residing in those homes needs a lot more attention, a lot more inspection, and a lot more enforcement if those plans of care aren't being followed properly.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we We all, I mean going back we all the cases of terrible bed sores uh so as you said no surprises here uh this report your report comes after a very very long list of other reports whose Mm -hmm. recommendations have been ignored so um what are your hopes for this and how do you plan to make that happen yeah, I mean, I think,
7: I think you know, we're pulling together in that report a lot of information from a lot of different sources, and we've put in the report 16 recommendations, but there's 55 actions attached to those. We're going to be, we've had the responses that there is intent to implement, so we will be following up on those. I think, um, you know, uh, there will still be the long-term care commission report coming out. I can't see how we wouldn't be aligned. There's a lot of things that likely, you know, are are consistent as well. So my hope is that between, you know, the reporting the reporting that's coming out that has recommendations in it, that those recommendations will be worked on and, and that that everyone keeps their eyes on making sure that um there are positive changes made to the long term care system as part of an integrated health system as well, not as a second cousin to the the healthcare system. Uh,
1: a, a couple more questions. First of all, uh, do you have any kind of number attached to the fixes that you want to see happen, and where's that money coming from?
7: Um, you know, I, already we have seen that there has been commitment to renovating some of the own room, uh, the rooms in the long term care so that you know um, they become one and two bedroom rooms. So we see that, and, and BC had more, has more has less three- and four-person rooms in Ontario, which is why the first round affected them less. Um, We do see there are initiatives for looking at the PSW staffing. That's a huge issue. 61% of the employees in long-term care homes are PSWs. They have a hugely high turnover rate, 40% leave a job in one year, and and that's a profession that's not regulated or wasn't tracked. uh, They've
1: announced some new regulation of it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah,
7: and that, that'll that be good because, um, you know, to make it more of a profession, because we're, you know, when you think of it, the province regulates like real estate agents, but here are people that are dealing with our, you know, our, our important seniors that, you know, built up the country. So, um, we do see hope in that, and um, obviously, there are recommendations that come at a cost, but there are also recommendations that are just, that can be implemented just with the people that are currently doing their jobs, and just doing the job
1: differently, right?
7: And and roles and responsibilities between public health and long-term care being clarified as well.
1: Okay, uh, very quick question just to end up. Uh, Yesterday, we found out about an emergency order where uh, people can now be moved from hospitals to long-term care without their consent. Does that worry you? Um, I think, you know, I don't know the details behind that, but you know, hopefully, the details
7: that were considered making that decision took into account the occupancy in the long-term care system, the retirement homes, and that it can afford having people moved from the hospitals to those facilities, so that you know we don't see um, uh, the consequences that we saw uh, when that was done before. The vaccinations play into that as well. So you know, I think um, in the initial wave, they thought the hospitals would be overwhelmed and. And I think recognized it was the long-term care homes this time. The hospitals are being overwhelmed, so as long as the occupancy is taken into account and the seniors are protected with vaccination, and um, you know that might be a way to free up the hospitals. So, but you know, obviously, I haven't seen the data. I'm just hoping that that's what the decisions were based on.
1: Okay, right. thank, thank you so you. much, Bonnie Lissick, Auditor General of Ontario. Thank Appreciate you. your time. Yeah, thank you, Libby. Bye. Oh, bye. So how do stakeholders see this? Let's bring in Donna Duncan, CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, and Jane Medes, staff lawyer and the institutional advocate at the Advocacy Center for the Elderly. Hello. Good afternoon, Ruby. So let's begin with Jane. What is your reaction to the report and what you just heard Bonnie Lissick saying?
8: Well, I mean, you know, the reaction to the report is that it's, you know, nothing new, as she said. You know, these are all things that uh, were problems um, and, you know, uh, continue to be problems in long-term care, and I don't see that um, it's going to change. I'm very disappointed in the minister's response to this and her, you know, seeming lack of understanding of what the government's role was in this. Um, you know, you some. I think you said something about keeping the door closed uh, closed after the, you know, in the barn. Uh, mine is, I think that, yes, it was on fire, and then they came in and threw gasoline on it because they oh, stopped well. the inspections. They forced people, you know, they were pushing people into long-term care. They didn't take proper steps. They didn't have any plans um, uh, going in. They didn't have any plans in the summer. And, um, you know, they didn't even have the long-term care sector at the table initially. Um, and I think this just just goes to show, you know, exactly what the ministry, what the government's opinion is. It's, you know, and we're seeing it now with these new forced um, transfers to long-term care homes and, and retirement homes, which are not long-term care homes and which will have no oversight. I mean, it's just, it's incredibly and, insane. And
1: no medical... Or almost no medical, uh, you know, no medical care in them.
8: That's yeah, and and uh, you know, it's it's another tragedy. Just you know, on the brink. I'm I'm just terrified. Uh,
1: before we move on to uh, Donna Jane, uh, mm-hmm. so the fact that really uh, Minister Fullerton just—I don't know if she's blind or she's telling herself this to make herself feel better. How th- th- this lack of 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 accepting responsibility for any part of what happened, you know, w- what's the upshot of that? Well, I mean, you
8: can't fix what you don't think is broken. So if she thinks that she did a great job, then, you know, the government's not going to change what they were doing. And, um, you know, throughout this, you know, she's had very specific positions, for example, around the inspections when, you know, consi- consistently they were being asked about, why aren't they doing full inspections? And she kept saying, well, but we're doing critical incidents and, and um, uh, complaint inspections. Well, you know, as the Auditor General's report pointed out, in which we in the system know, they're not the same thing. They don't look at the same things and they don't find the same thing. And so she doesn't think she did anything wrong. So it can't be fixed.
1: Okay, let's bring in Donna Duncan. Uh, Donna, what's your view of this report? No surprises, and uh, the way the minister reacted to it.
6: Yeah, uh, you know, I echo Jane's comments and and the Auditor General's comments. No surprises. Uh, We knew that we were facing a perfect storm before this hit, uh, and we knew that, uh, you know, we've had decades of neglect of a system. uh, And quite honestly, I would say that we all failed our seniors. And not just in Ontario, but uh, across Canada and globally, uh, we've seen this virus really prey on on our most vulnerable citizens. Um, you know, I I I I have to say I can I do give the uh, the government some credit for starting to move on some things. Uh, I would say that uh, we're we're getting we have new relationships. They they prioritized us for vaccines. Uh, they uh, they did start to build out IPAC over the summer, was it enough? Absolutely not. Uh, was there some progress? Um, probably progress that benefits us more today than, than, than before. And, and we have seen absolute tragic loss of life. And we can't lose sight of the fact these are human beings. And uh, we've got to all retain our, our empathy and compassion for the people who've died, for their families, but also for, for those frontline staff. We've just been traumatized through this. Uh, I, I think going through the report of the Auditor General, looking at she, you know, she validates that the staffing crisis that we continue to be in those old homes and those buildings. You um, know, we're excited because we we actually have a home opening this weekend. So that's that's progress, and we'll take that, and, and we'll take the new relationships that we have with the hospitals for IPAC, but also for wraparound. And we've been uh, working with Ontario Health and the government around um, how are we going to respond to this extraordinary new new order uh, around transfers into long-term care. And, it, you know, we're, we're hopeful that it will be done respectfully and safely and that there will be... Um, individuals who are who, who are moved into long term care will have services and and supports wrapped around them, including medical supports,
1: psychogeriatric support. Uh, let, let me just ask you: uh, With that, do the homes have control? Like, can a home say, "I don't have room for anyone extra," or the hospitals say, "Okay, uh, you're getting Mrs. Jones tomorrow"?
6: Yes, the homes do, uh, and and we do have commitments that. They will consider geography. They will consider culture and faith uh, to make sure that they're appropriate uh, placements in those regards. Uh, The homes also can say we don't have enough staff. So if if you're going to move someone here, you you have to make sure that we have nursing staff, that we have medical supports, and potentially also psychogeriatric supports for some of these placements. So. those commitments have been made to the sector that this will be a partnership, uh, and that uh, this is a this is a tool that will, will only be used in, in extraordinary circumstances. Uh, and really, the focus is on voluntary transfers into into homes uh, in partnership with with the patients who will transition into becoming residents and their families. Uh,
1: so um, you know, uh, it's. Uh I, I my understanding was that they want to move uh, fifteen hundred people.
6: That that was the original target in terms of um, um, moving in across the province and, and moving beds. Uh, we've had, a, I think, as of today, close to six hundred people who've been transitioned from hospital into long term care. Um, the focus really is going to be on those geographic hotspots including the GTA, uh, and uh, really prioritizing that transfers in, in, in this community where we have the greatest pressure on the hospitals, ICUs.
1: Okay. Uh, we're basically out of time on this. Uh, Jane, meet us. Uh, 20 seconds to wrap up, please.
8: Well, uh, you know, just just on sort of this last thing, we were talking about the transfers and into the homes. I'm not sure if the ministry um, and the government has thought this through. Um, I think that there's a lot of implications in the. Uh, that they may not have thought of, um, such as, you know, people, you know, who's going to pay for the transfers. I just read today that, uh, you know, someone who died in a hospital out of town is being forced yeah. to, you know, pay coming back. And this has always been a problem and who's paying for that. If they're coming back to a home, it could be thousands of dollars if they have to come by a orange ambulance, if the government hasn't paid for it. I think there's a lot of things that they really haven't thought of, um, uh, including the fact that if they're using these beds in retirement homes, and the government's paying for them. They're no longer under the Retirement Home Act, um, and uh, therefore they're not going to be inspected.
1: Well, wow. um, we were talking about that yesterday. We'll be talking about all of this uh, again next week. In the meantime, thank you so much, Jane Metus and Donna Duncan. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, uh, we're going to take a very quick break. When we come back, Mayor Patrick Brown, he's been pushing for paid sick days for months. And we finally got some yesterday. Uh, We'll find out what he thinks about the program and whether it will help the situation in Brampton, which is very hard hit on the other side of the break.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio.